A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And we're here today to talk a little bit about the background to the, um, the religious Zionist uh, youth groups, B'nai Akiva, other ones, and how that evolved into also the network of the yeshivas, especially their flagship yeshiva, of the, the flagship yeshiva of Karen Beyavne and the entire yeshiva system um, of, of um, B'nai Akiva, religious Zionism, um, Dati Lumin, Hebrew, sometimes referred to collectively as the Mizrahi, um, incorrectly so, but that's another story. And, um, and the personalities behind it, and it's really an interesting story of another aspect of the yeshiva movement so in modern times so the uh, interesting in as as the mizrahi is is founded in pol in poland in lithuania in the russian empire in 1902 right or yakov yitzchak it's like yakov i don't remember which way and it spawns a political movement and like like most uh, things in Poland at the time, most movements in Poland at the time, it spawned a youth uh, movement group um, called, eventually called Hashomer Hadati. And I just recently heard a lecture by a guy who wrote a doctorate on Hashomer Hadati. I forgot his name. And he emphasized how it was never called Hashomer Hadati, which would be the correct way to pronounce it. But it was always called Hashomer Hadati, um, because that's how Polish Jews spoke, even if they were Zionist Jews and they were planning on speaking a correct Hebrew when they arrived in Israel. But when they're still back in Poland, they said Hashomer Hadati. So, as the name suggests, Hashomer it was supposed to be, um, you know, a, sim- a symbol as if they're, you know, like the Shomer Hatsair which was the very secular, very leftist, almost Marxist uh, at a certain time uh, of, of labor Zionism, of the left flank of secular Zionism. And here the statement was being made that this is like Hashomer, this is similar to Hashomer at Seir, but it's religious. We're able to have 
all of our religious values and all of our Zionist values in the same group. That was the message of it. It was pretty, pretty religious. It was actually relatively more traditional, more um, in outlook, in practice, more religious than its counterpart in Israel, B'nai Akiva, which we're going to get to soon. And there are many people from Hasidish homes in Poland, in Galicia, and even Rebbe's homes and, and, and from from uh, different Hasidism in Poland, and from Sons and from others who joined up, and many of them even did not give up their their way of dress and way of life. They felt that it was not a contradiction um, at all, and many of them um, moved from Poland to Israel at the time. They set up kibbutzim, the the uh, famous uh, Gush Etzion massacre. Uh, that that yeshuv uh, during the 1948 war was founded by uh, alumni of of Hashomer Hadati and others, other places that that were in were very prominent, mainly in Eretz Yisrael. And actually, they they transferred operations and most of them were wiped out during the war, obviously. But there was a little bit of a resurgence in the immediate post-war in the United States and Canada, um, actually, and um, some and produced some uh, some pretty impressive. Uh, people um, who moved to uh, Professor Zev Lev of Machon Lev grew up in Hashomer Adati, and um, there's some other others as well, other personalities as well. In any event, that was all back in Poland. In the meantime, actually, the same year, 1929, both movements were founded, and they did not, uh, you know, coordinate this founding with each other. So it's kind of ironic that both of them started in the same year. They started B'nai Akiva in Israel, which was then Palestine, 1929, by some pretty, you know, people who are affiliated with the Mizrahi party and more with Hapoel HaMizrahi, the Mizrahi workers. And they found B'nai Akiva, which again was a youth movement, a youth group. And the questions arose right away about what its goals were and what its value system was. And there was uh, tensions within the movement from the beginning, for instance, about mixed gatherings. So the Akiva um, had had a mixed boy, it was co-ed, mixed boys and girls. And the question was, is that something ideal? Is that, you know, to prevent, uh, to prevent marriage, you know, to, to marriage to secular, um, God forbid, or is it something that's only um, bidi evan, it's something that's not ideal, that is only under the circumstances they're willing to allow it, or is it something that they shouldn't permit altogether? And voices were heard from all sides of the spectrum. And there's, you know, there's from the beginning of the movement, there's the question of what direction the movement should take. It becomes very popular and very successful. And one of the early personalities who becomes kind of like the godfather of the entire movement is the very famous Talmud of Rav Kook, Rav Meshitzvinaria. Ravmeshitzvinaria was originally Ravmeshitzvimenikin, was father of Psachimenikin, was uh, Talmud al Chavetz Chaim, and learned in the Mir and Slabatka, and uh, Ravneria himself learned in Shklov and another couple of places in Europe before he moved to Eretz Yisrael in the 1930s. He came from a very strong Litvisha rabbinic um, aristocratic background, and he learned by Rav Kook in Merkaz Harav when he came here. A tremendous Talmud Chacham, and a very powerful personality, a dynamic, very lovable, very charismatic personality also. And he 
early on joins the movement, and he's the one who founds uh, the first yeshiva. The first yeshiva is in Kfar Haro'eh, and it becomes a yeshiva a high school. It's the first yeshiva high school that belongs to the Bnei Akiva movement. And a very impressive personality is involved with the yeshiva from the beginning. Rabbi Shol Yisraeli was one of the greatest Talmud Chacham and Paiskim involved with the uh, religious Zionist world altogether. And he, he, he was involved in everything. He was on the Rabbanut and he was a rabbi and a Rosh Yeshiva and a Rebbe and, a, and who knows what else. A very prominent personality and knowledgeable person. And early on also he brought, brings in a Ravram Tzukerman. Ravram Tzukerman was a student of Navardic back in Europe. And his Rebbe in the Navardic branch in Pinsk was the stipler. And he, when he moved to Eretz Yisrael, he joins up eventually with Kfar Haro'e. And he's the longest lasting there because he died at the ripe old age of 98 years old, Ravram Tzukerman, and it was only a few years ago. So he oversaw the movement from the beginning until recently. Very also impressive personnel. And he gave it a certain direction. Also, he's the one who eventually brought in secular studies to Kfar Haro'eh. Believe it or not, Ramesha Tzvinaria, in this high school, this is not a post-high school, right? The first post-high school yeshiva of Bnei Akiva would become um, Karen Biyavne, not Merkaz Arav, ironically. Merkaz Arav was never affiliated officially with Bnei Akiva or Mizrahi, which is another curiosity of, of Jewish history. But... Um, but this is officially belongs to the movement, Karen Biavna, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, it belongs to the Bnei Akiva movement. But that's the post-high school yeshiva that only comes in 1953. In 1940, again, the movement starts in 1929. In 1940, 11 years later, the first yeshiva high school begins, and that eventually bursts into a movement of yeshiva high schools, becomes many, many um, high schools. And there were yeshiva high schools that existed before that, but they were not affiliated with Bnei Akiva. The Yeshuvah Chadash in Tel Aviv existed and was, was already starting another unique institution, Ritzvi Yehuda Meltzer. Rabbi Zalman's son had the Kletzk Yeshiva in Rechovot, and eventually that merged um, the Yeshivat Hadarom, it was called after a while, and it eventually merged with another Yeshiva, um, which officially wasn't called a Yeshiva, it was called a Midrashiyah. And it was founded, it was called Midrashiyat Noam, it belonged to the Mizrahi. And it was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yeshua Yogel. And Rabbi Yeshua Yogel um, was a close Talmud of the Chazayin Ish. And the Chazayin Ish advised him to start this yeshiva. And he told him three conditions. First of all, you can't call it a yeshiva because it's going to be teaching secular studies. And you can't call a place that has secular studies a yeshiva, which worked out with what the founders had intended anyway, because they felt that people would be turned off if it was called a yeshiva, and they wouldn't send their children there. So they didn't want to call it a yeshiva, they wanted to call it a midrashiyah. And, and the Chazanish's second condition was, is that Rabishu Yogel should be clean-shaven, and um, which he did, he lived a very long life, he was about 90 years old when he died, and you see the pictures from his later on in life, and he's still clean-shaven. And the third condition was, um, I don't remember, how do you like that? And I wrote in my notes that there were three conditions from the Chazaynish, assuming that while I'm broadcasting, I would remember the three conditions of the Chazaynish. And 
Lo and behold, I don't remember what the third condition was. I'll have to look it up another time. Either way, so he keeps to them. And so Midrashiyat Noam in Rechovod, which eventually becomes part of, or a feeder into this, to the Meltzers, Yeshivat Adarom, Yeshivat Kletzk Yeshiva, which, which, uh, which um, you know, belong in Kletzk, Meltzer, it's the... The Cutlers were involved at some level also at one point. Rishner, when he lived in Eretz Yisrael during the war, officially was on the stationary of that yeshiva too. But that's the whole story also uh, in itself. So Rabbi Shua Yogel has that yeshiva. There were other, what's called yeshivot tichoniyot. In other words, yeshiva high schools of the Mizrahi. But here was the Bnei Akiva's first yeshiva. And Ramayshitzvin area did not allow secular studies. He said, no, yeshiva doesn't have secular studies. And there was agricultural work in, in line with the philosophy of Bnei Akiva that it's Torah va'avodah, Torah and labor. And there you do study farming and agriculture, working the land, but not secular studies in the beginning. Ravram Sukraman pushed that they should include secular studies afterwards. Now, I just want to give some context here. This is the 1940s. What's going on on the other side of the ocean? The other side of the ocean, all the prominent yeshiva high schools in America, um, Tyre Vadas, Chaim Berlin, Ner Yisrael, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan, RJJ, all their high school programs had secular studies. It went without saying. No one said, no one blinked, no one said boo. Right? And the whole question was, should they have secular studies in the post-high school uh, um, yeshivas, right? Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan opened Yeshiva University. And Chaim Berlin and Tarev Adas and Israel allowed post-high school yeshiva guys in their yeshivas to attend college outside, outside the yeshiva. And Rabbi Cutler at this time is fighting this uphill battle that they, that his new yeshiva is not going to allow any secular studies, not going to allow the guys to attend college even outside of the yeshiva because this is going to be a purely only Torah institution. That's what's going on in all the mainstream yeshivas on the other side of the Atlantic at the same time in the 1940s. Whereas in Eretz Yisrael, you have the yeshiva, the first yeshiva high school, not not post-high school, the yeshiva high school that's founded by Bnei Akiva, by the Mizrahi, and there's no reason to have secular studies. In other words, the battlegrounds, as we'll call it for lack of a better word, the, the point of contention about the yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael at this time is not, yes, secular studies, not secular studies like it is in America, but rather, yes, Zionism or no Zionism. And the, the, uh, Haredi or what's called the, the, uh, the, uh, Agudis Yisrael or Haredi establishment, whatever you want to call it, is looks with askance to these new yeshivas, not because of secular studies, but rather because it's Zionist, it's Mizrahi, it's 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 their political affiliation. So it's a very interesting distinction between the founding of these yeshivas and the other ones. Of course, Ramayshitzvinarius um, eventually did bring in secular studies, and that that became a component of the yeshiva as well. Now, the the that's Kfar Haroe in nineteen fifty three. There is an attempt to start to start a post high school yeshiva, and they started in Karim Beyavna Menachem Musishkin, um, the secular Zionist leader, encouraged it and gave them land for it and helped fund it because the idea was to evoke the memory 
of the Sanhedrin, which was in Yavne, and they sat in rows like a kerem, which the Gemara says, and here we're starting a new yeshiva, a new post-high school yeshiva, and this is going to be the senior yeshiva for the post-high school guys of religious Zionism, and it was a very momentous occasion. Interestingly enough, and this has been pointed out by quite a few people, this graduate of Merkaz Arav, close Talmud of Rav Kook, when they felt the need to start a new yeshiva for B'nai Akiva post-high school, they didn't naturally look towards Merkaz Arav and say, hey, that's our yeshiva, that's the natural graduate program yeshiva for for the guys from Kfar Haro'eh, but rather they felt the need to start their own yeshiva. Okay, so that's that's an interesting point to make out. Merkaz Arav still existed, and so you, the cook, was the Rosh Yeshiva, but they continue on their way, and Karim Biyavna starts on their own footing. And um, the way they, 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 one of the reasons that they wanted this post-high school yeshiva was that they saw that in these yeshivas that the Bnei Akiva is opening up, they're bringing in Rabbeim from Bnei Brak, they're bringing in Rabbeim who are graduates of Hebron yeshiva, from Panavish yeshiva, and they don't have their own, and they want it to be graduates of their own system who are inculcating the youth with the religious Zionist ideals. And in order to do so, they have to have their own post-high school yeshiva, which till you know then eventually grows into many yeshivas and kolim and all kinds of things in the religious Zionist world, which exists till today. Quite a, quite an extensive and impressive network, which is producing uh, quite impressive people. And and um, but at the beginning, they didn't find anyone who would agree to take this yeshiva at take the helm. Rabbi Yisraeli did not want to. Others who were asked also declined. So they took someone who was from who was not from the religious Zionist world, and they brought him in to be the first Rosh Yeshiva. That was Rabbi Chaim Yankiv Goldvicht, who was a from a Yerushalmi family, an old, ancient Yerushalmi family for quite a few generations. He had studied in a Chaim Yeshiva under Rabbi Sezal Meltzer, and he was quite an impressive individual, a huge Talmud Chacham, even from a young age, and he would go often to speak to the Briskarov when he came to Yerushalayim and learning and when later on he was in B'nai Brak, and he became close to the Chazinish in learning, he was learning in a Kailal in B'nai Brak, and he was close with everyone. He was he was a, a superstar, a young superstar, and here he's given an opportunity to become the founding Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva religious Zionism, which everyone was surprised. How would he go ahead outside of his comfort zone and become the Rosh Yeshiva of this Yeshiva? And there's a few different versions of of why and how he decided. Oh, he had also learned, how did he come to be in Bnei Brak altogether? I'm sorry, I forgot this point. It was that he learned in the newly founded Slabotki Yeshiva that Rabbi Isaac Sher had founded. And this Rabbi Chaim Yankov Golden got involved in the Musar movement or whatever remained of it after the war by becoming close with Rabbi Isaac Sher and the remnants of what Slabotka Musar was. So he was close with Rabbi Isaac. He was close with everybody. And... Um, and he and 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 allegedly, so one version is is that he asked the Chazanish, and the Chazanish said, in a very interesting response, um, he said, "Well, if the religious Zionists want to learn Tyra, then it's our duty to teach them Tyra." Well, it's a you know a bit patronizing, but uh, or you know in a, in a paternal way maybe. Um, but he 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 says that that's one version of the response, and he encourages them to do it. In another version, he does not exactly encourage him to do it, but Rabbi Chaim Yankiv Goldvich's wife uh, in, encourages encourages uh, either her husband or the Chazanish himself 
that since they need it for, uh, you know, they need a salary, they need to make a living, they need a parnasa, so it's important for them to take the position. So whatever version it is, but he ultimately goes, and he's essentially taken as an outsider. And he incorporates, you know, he acclimates himself to this situation, and he takes, and he takes the yeshiva, the, the new yeshiva, and it uh, takes, takes the reins. And as far as he's concerned, this is a regular yeshiva. This is what we would call a litvish yeshiva. And he speaks in a very, what we would call today, yeshivish or Ashkenazi Hebrew, which very often the boys didn't understand. He wasn't excited that they came in with sandals or with, or with shorts into the base medrash, um, which, you know, which was to him culturally unacceptable. And slowly but surely, there's this, there's between the board of the yeshiva, the Mizrahi, the Bnei Akiva leaders, where there's a tension that develops between them and Reb Chaim Yaakov Goldwicht, who, excuse me, who sees his, his, uh, his, his job a little differently than they do. And, and eventually they learn to compromise and live with each other. And, um, and that's why, how the yeshiva becomes so successful. Um, he's a fatherly figure. He's very close with the Talmudim and the yeshiva. Um, he, he comes to terms with it. He even spearheads the yeshiva becoming the first Hezda yeshiva, which is only years later, about a decade later. Um, originally, the army played no role in the yeshiva curriculum. The army wasn't part of it. There was, there, it was a pretty much a strictly learning atmosphere. There was other extracurricular activities, but definitely not the army in the beginning. And not only was it a learning atmosphere, but it was only learning Gemara and Musr, like from Slobatka. It was a very, he said, I'm founding a regular Litvish yeshiva as far as he's concerned. Eventually, because of pressure, he agreed to uh, other subjects. What were the other subjects that he agreed to? To have them well-rounded. What's well-rounded? To have a little Hasidus and some Roshamshan of Fall Hirsch, which, you know, was, uh, that, that was, that's well-rounded Torah education. And uh, that was included, eventually other forms of Jewish philosophy um, were also included, and he remained the very beloved Rosh Hashiva um, pretty much till the end of his life in the 1990s, and um, literally being the Rebbe to thousands of the Talmidim who passed through Karim B'Yavna over the decades. His nephew, Meir Goldvicht, is of course a Rosh Hashiva in uh, Rabbi Yitzchakon Wayu. Today he had also learned under his his uh, uncle, and uh, he was a he was the the heart and soul of Karim B'Yavne throughout those years. So that's a little bit about Rav Goldvicht, Karim B'Yavne, B'nai Akiva. Of course, there's plenty more to say. This is just a little taste. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours and trips to places of Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbytes, and I hope you enjoyed.